new song for you all. That's okay. It was new for me too. That's why we are introducing it. Uh, it's going to be one of the, the songs regularly in our rotation as we think about the Lord's Supper. If you guys saw some of those images that we were singing about. And so hopefully next week when we take the Lord's Supper, then when we sing this again, we'll think, okay, here's where we're connecting some of this together. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. And it's uh, a, a wonderful delight that we get to open God's word together that we get to uh, sing praises to him, and then we get to open his word and, and let it be uh, a, a shining flashlight into our lives as to what it looks like to live for him and love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm really glad that we get to do this together. This morning, I want you guys to think back a little bit to my life when I, before I moved here. Uh, after I graduated from college, uh, I spent a few years being a substitute teacher. Uh, I was in five different school districts uh, in the Colorado area, and I had one reoccurring problem every time. Kids who needed to use restrooms would not come back to class. They'd wander around the building, left to, to use the restroom, right? Uh, and so I had to come up with a plan. So do you all know what I did? I made them leave a shoe at my desk, guaranteeing that they would come back to class. I mean, it's kind of gross. I wouldn't go into a middle school or a high school bathroom without, without a shoe. Like, that stuff was gross. Uh, but that, if, if they wanted the privilege of using the restroom during my class, well, they had to pony up a shoe. Uh, if they didn't, well, I had no control over where they would go. Well, this morning... Pharaoh tries to get Israel to leave something with Pharaoh in order that he guarantees that they might come back and continue to serve him as his slaves. Pharaoh wanted to show his control over them the same way I wanted to show control over the students. But we will see this morning very different outcomes for Pharaoh and for Israel than the students that I had in class. And we're doing something a little bit unusual uh, in, in the history of Friendship Baptist Church, in that we are literally going through five chapters of the Bible this morning. where And these aren't like three verse chapters. Literally, chapter 9 has 35 verses, and chapter 10 has 29 verses, and chapter 11, which we read, I gave mercy on that, was 10 verses. And then uh, uh, chapter 12 uh, I actually stopped counting. And then there's also chapter 13 that we're going through. And so literally, if we were to take one minute on every verse, you all would be here through lunchtime. And so what we're going to do instead is we're going to do a 30,000 feet flyover of what is God doing here and why is it so important for us this morning. And so in order for you to be doing that, you are going to need a Bible in front of you. We did not print out five chapters for you. Uh, I think there's actually copyright laws against us being able to reproduce that material in such great length. And so therefore, you are going to need a Bible. So whether that is a paper Bible or one on your app that you're able to look at, we want you to be able to look at what we are talking about in Exodus this morning, because it's going to be really important. I'm going to summarize, but I'm also going to be referencing verses that you are going to want to be looking at as we go through Exodus. And actually, this morning, we're, we're doing something really great. We are finishing up our first sec major section of the book of Exodus. 
where we see Israel's release from Pharaoh's authority uh, after God compels Pharaoh with his mighty hand. And something we've been doing is we've been working on a verse of the series where we're trying to memorize it that will help us in our aid and study of the book of Exodus. So that's Exodus 6 verse 7. Let's all say that together. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Well, let's pray for God's help this morning as we open up his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that in uh, Exodus this morning, you would help us to see your power and how you are at work and how your work is designed for the whole world to know about you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would compel us as we read to want to share in the telling of your work as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So because there are five chapters that we're going through, you're going to need some sort of bus handle to hold on to as we're flying by, okay? So here's what I want you guys to hold on to, that if you get nothing else from the sermon this morning, uh, this is the one thing we want you to walk away with. The power and work of God should be known in the hearts of his people and all over the world. So remember God's rescue of his people and tell it to others. The power and work of God should be known in the hearts of God's people and all over the world. So remember God's rescue of his people and tell it to others. We're going to look at this kind of in three different ways. We're going to see in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of, of God defeating the Egyptian deities. And then we're going to look at the Passover and the Exodus in chapter 12. And then we're going to look at the first sights of freedom in chapter 13. So hold on. Here we go. Let's look at chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Exodus together. Right? So here's what's been going on. God had been sending Moses and, Pharaoh, or Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, to call, calling Pharaoh to release God's people from slavery in Egypt. And so far, it hasn't been working. And so God has been having Moses and Aaron display signs and, and wonders and plagues upon Egypt. Uh, and each one has been successively getting worse and worse. And yet each time, Pharaoh has been saying, no, he's been refusing to release Israel so that they can serve God instead of him. And so Pharaoh has hardened his heart and refused. And each time, these progressions of plagues keep getting worse. And they escalate up to the destruction of property and animal life and, and culminate, as we're going to see this morning, in the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. And so chapter 9 really is just a continuation of worse and worse plagues happening. So we see that, that in the first seven verses of chapter 9, uh, the, the Egyptian livestock die. And, and, and we're going to see a reference to this, uh, but as we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, each of these plagues correspond to a deity that the Egyptians were worshiping that God was showing his absolute power over it without contest. And so, so for the Egyptian livestock, uh, the Egyptian deity Hathor, uh, which was in the form of a cow, is what God was showing his superiority over. And if Pharaoh refused to repent, 
If he refused to let Israel go, then the livestock would die. But God would make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and of Egypt. And so in verse 6 of chapter 9, we read, All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And then yet the result in the very next verse, in verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And so then the next plague came, the boils, in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 9. And and this is corresponding to, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this Egyptian deity name, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. I'm Hotep, and, and, and this is their god of medicine, actually. And so these boils broke out in sores all over the Egyptian people and their animals. And, and their magicians were powerless before God and could not stand, they couldn't even stand before Moses because the boils on their bodies were so bad. And then we see in verse 12, the result, that the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh did not listen to Moses. And so then here comes the next plague, a plague of hail in verses 13 through 35. And, and so this Egyptian deity, Seth, was the protector of crops. But what this hail did is that it destroyed the crops. And God's people were called by God to serve him and not called to serve Pharaoh. And so notice why God sent this plague in verse 14. He says this, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And this gets to a really important part that we need to realize is that there is no one like God in all the earth. Sounds like something we were singing about earlier this morning, right? There is no rival. There is no power that comes close to God. There is no higher authority than Yahweh. All of God's actions are to show God's power for the purpose of the glory of God so that God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. So imagine right now, we in Ohio, in North America, far from Egypt, we are proclaiming God's great name and his awesome power here. We are proclaiming that there is no power that comes close to God There's no government, foreign or domestic. There is no boss. There is no enemy that we could ever face that comes close to the power of Yahweh. That matters for those who worship him. That matters for those who also want to deny him and say that he is nothing. Notice in this plague of hail that God offers mercy to those who are willing to listen to his warning. Look at verses 19 and through 21 of chapter 9. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. 
But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And it was so destructive that if there were any animals left that survived the other plagues, they were sure to be gone in this one too. Hail, like never before seen in Egypt, every plant and tree broken. Only the area of Goshen, where Israel lived, was free from hail. Israel was spared from God's judgment against God's enemies. It's powerful for us to notice that God's judgment is actually used for repentance. Look at Pharaoh's response in verse 27 of chapter 9. Look at what Pharaoh says to Moses. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. And so Pharaoh asks for Moses to, to pray to Yahweh to, to relent from, from the destructive hail. And so God relents and, and Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased. And then in verses 34 and 35, we read this, speaking of Pharaoh. He sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go. So we move on to chapter 10 where we see more plagues coming. This time it's a plague of locusts. And really in the first 20 verses is, is where this is looking at. And it's dealing with, again, this Egyptian deity Seth, the protector of crops. But notice God's motivation to do all this in verses 1 and 2. Again, that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Friends, what a good picture and reminder for us that God is working in this way for the sake of his name. People today are, are famous for their athletic ability, for their musical ability, for their amazing business growth. And, and yet what makes God famous are his actions. What, what he does to display his name and to display who he is. And each of God's judgments are right. Each of these plagues against Egypt are right to be had. Because I think sometimes we like to question, well, what do we think about God's judgments. I think that they should humble us because I think that if it weren't for the mercy of God that he has had upon me, that I'd be no better off than where Pharaoh or the Egyptians are. God is always right. His commands are not to be rejected. And when they are, well, then at the heart of rebellion against God is a proud heart. And so we, where we think that we know better than God. How does your heart fight against God. In times when you struggle with what God is doing, consider that you don't see every angle that he does. And consider how God is able to know the heart in ways that we do not always see. So look at, at verse 3 of chapter 10. Notice in, in chapter 10 verse 3, God acknowledges Pharaoh's prideful heart. He says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? God says. See, Pharaoh knows what God commands, 
He just doesn't think it's in his best interest to do it. Friends, that is the definition of a proud heart against God. Thinking that God's ways are not what's best for you. Thinking that you are able to ignore God and it doesn't matter. Or thinking that you know better than God. What a call for us to check our hearts regularly and ask ourselves, does pride replace my will over God's will for my life? I guarantee you that in areas that you consider off limits to God are areas where pride has significant influence in your life. And what's God's solution? The same thing he tells Pharaoh in in verse three. Humbly submit to God. Humbleness is the killer of pride and the glorifier of God. God's plan was for worldwide recognition of who he is through his power in the plagues. The locusts came and Pharaoh and his own people are then turning on him and they wanted Israel to leave so they could have some relief from God's judgments. That's what we see in verses seven and eight of chapter 10. Uh, Pharaoh makes then an unsuccessful bargain trying to keep control of Israel. He says, well, well, who would go with you if you were to go out to worship? And, and he says, well, just take the men. You need to leave all the, all the children here as if we would trust Pharaoh with our children, right? But that's already been bad. And thankfully, it was an unsuccessful bargain in him trying to keep control of Israel and at the same time have relief from the plagues. So Pharaoh thought about repenting in verses 16 and 17, but but it was short-lived. Pharaoh again did not let Israel go because the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so then here comes the next plague. Verses 21 through 29 of chapter 10. This time, darkness. Uh, And this is oftentimes connected to Ray, a a sun god that, that Egyptians would worship. This is another plague without warning. And this plague was where darkness was all over the land of Egypt for three days, except for where Israel lived. Pharaoh wanted relief and to remain in control. So what does he do? He tries to make another unsuccessful bargain. Well, this time, uh, all the people can go, but, but you need to leave your livestock here, okay? Uh, we, I need some guarantee you're going to come back, is what he's saying. Thankfully, it was unsuccessful. And so the plague was a direct attack against Pharaoh, for he really was the divine representation of the sun god, Ray. And so darkness covered the land for three days, and no one could see anything or leave their homes. And yet where Israel was, it was bright light. Pharaoh was furious. He didn't want to see Moses again, and yet Pharaoh doesn't dictate the work of God. Amen? God wasn't finished. And so in chapter 11 11 that we read, uh, Israel was not freed. Pharaoh still had not let them go. And so one more plague would set Pharaoh over the edge where he would have to let them go. Not only would he let them go, but he would then drive them out of the land of Egypt. One more chance of repentance or every firstborn in the land of Egypt would die. From Pharaoh's household down to even every slave even the firstborn of the cattle. God was working, remember, look at verse 10 of chapter 11, so that his wondrous deeds would be made 
known. Pharaoh's magicians have not stopped Yahweh. In fact, what we've seen is that there's been no bargaining with God. The plagues have only stopped when God has relented. Yahweh holds all the cards, all the power, and he is acting for his glory of his name. The power and the work of God should be known in the hearts of his people and all over the world. So remember God's rescue of his people and tell it to others. Let's keep going on in the Passover and the Exodus of chapter 12. Oh man, I, I apologize. I, I didn't get all these up. Do you guys get that one? Sorry. Power, humbleness. So, all right. We're going to be continuing with the Passover and the Exodus of chapter 12. And so in chapter 12, God had warned, God had been patient. God offered Pharaoh chances to repent. God was therefore then showing his power over every Egyptian deity and how God was to act in, in maybe coming up the biggest act of judgment. The supposed gods of the Nile the, or the sun or the winds or the various other parts of, or players in the world have had no strength. They have no will. They have no effectiveness of any kind against God. All these Egyptian deities are an illusion. They couldn't even help the Egyptians prevail against Yahweh. And so the rescue that God worked for Israel in Egypt was so big, it was a new beginning, a new start. It was such a new start that even the way they counted their days was going to be into relation of what God had done. Consider what it says in chapter 12, verse 2. This month, shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So no matter what month it was, it was a new year. Friends, God's work in us through Christ is the most important new beginning we could ever have. The Christian life isn't designed for us to be saved and then to continue to live our lives as if nothing new has happened when Christ has taken our sin and has given us new life in him through his blood being spilt on the cross and him rising from the dead, everything changes. The way we parent changes. The way we invest in our marriages changes. The way we go to work changes because we have become servants of the Lord. We've been forgiven and adopted and justified and chosen and predestined and redeemed. Nothing is the same now. And so we see three acts of faith that Christians are to do once they're saved. Christians are to get baptized, where we are publicly proclaiming that we are united to Christ. We are to join a, a church and covenant community where God's covenant love is displayed in our love for one another. And we're called to serve for the building up of others for the sake of the gospel where Jesus' servant heart is followed by his people. Because a Christian who doesn't want to publicly display their new life in Christ misunderstands the newness of their life. A Christian who doesn't join a church fails to see the covenant commitment that we are called to have with other Christians. A Christian who doesn't serve to build up others fails to see how the gospel compels us to love others. 
And so if God is, if God's work in us has a little outward effect, maybe it's a misunderstanding of God's gracious new beginning for us that's happening. So for this last plague, Israel needed to be prepared. That's what God is telling them to do in verse 3 of chapter 12, telling them ahead of time of what's going to happen. So they're to take a, each household is supposed to take a lamb without blemish. They're to kill it and eat it and, and put the blood on the doorposts of their house. They were to eat the lamb ready to go with, with their belts on, with their sandals on their feet, ready to leave that very night. And so that night, the Lord would pass over through all of Egypt and kill every firstborn human and animal. Why? God was preparing a final judgment against Egypt. And look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. That's what he's been doing. He's been showing that the gods of Egypt have nothing. But when God saw the blood, when God saw the blood, he would pass by them and no plague would come and destroy that house. The death of the firstborn would show the total inability of the gods of Egypt to protect their people in the face of this unparalleled tragedy. And Israel was to celebrate this every year. And to not celebrate this, uh, it says in chapter 12, would really be to reject the rescuing work of God and would cast a person out of the community of Israel. And so in this plague, God was teaching the Israelites a deeply important spiritual lesson, ultimately pointing to Christ. Unlike the other plagues, which the Israelites survived by virtue of their identity as God's people, this plague threatened everyone. Their trust in God was now to have evidence. Any family that did not follow God's instructions would suffer in the last plague. God described how he would go through the land of Egypt to slay the firstborn in every household, whether human or animal. And the only protection was the blood of the lamb on the door. So when Yahweh saw the blood, he would pass over that house and he would leave it untouched, verse 23 of chapter 12 says. So this is where the term Passover comes from. If, if, if you guys have any Jewish friends who've ever celebrated that, it's a memorial of that night when God delivered his people from bondage. Now we have to remember, Israel wasn't without flaws. Okay, they had rebellious hearts against God also. The reality is that they too deserved judgment for their sin. But something else died in their place. Israel was being taught this very important principle that God saves by substitution. God saves through providing a substitute to die in the place of others. And so the Passover is a small picture of a greater act of deliverance to come. Jesus' rescue for us. So just as the Passover lamb died for the sins of others, so Jesus died as our substitute. So on a dreadful night, God passed through the land in judgment and every Egyptian firstborn was killed. 
Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and demanded that they and all of Israel leave Egypt. And as they were told to do by God, they plundered the Egyptians of their gold and their silver. Hundreds of thousands of people left. And so thus the Passover celebration was established to celebrate God's rescue. Consider the power that God has been on dis- put on display for his people. And so when we turn to the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament understood that the Old Testament Passover was a foreshadow of Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross. So that's why when we get to things when Jesus is about to go get baptized by John the Baptist in John chapter one, John says of Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or consider what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 verse seven, where he talks about Christ in this way. He says this, for Christ, this is awesome, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I mean, it's not a coincidence that Jesus died at Passover time, as we see in Matthew 26 and John 19. The Passover in Exodus is a foreshadowing of the spotless lamb of God, Jesus, whose blood would cover the sins of those who would believe in him, causing God's judgment to pass over them. The Passover feast was a foreshadowing of Christ's atoning work on the cross. Because we as humans are found naturally rebellious with rebellious hearts towards God in ways that we deserve God's judgment. And yet by substitution, the Father's sinless Son bore the punishment of our rebellion that was due to us who were guilty. And so what we find is that Jesus stepping in our place as our substitute is the very picture of God's love towards us and the greatest work for our greatest need. It is at the cross of Christ that God has triumphed over evil forces on our behalf. And it's at the cross where we see God's greatest sacrifice, where God would stop at nothing to bring his people back into covenant with him. Consider what 1 John 4 says. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you wonder what lengths God will go to to rescue his people, friends, consider the book of Exodus. If you are someone who struggles with doubting the length to which God will rescue you, look at what we've been reading in the book of Exodus. If you are right now struggling with sin and wonder, how could God accept me? Look at what we see in Exodus. Look at the plagues. Look at the length to which God will go for rescuing his people. In fact, he doesn't even stop there until they're freed. Christian, know God's love for you. Look at God's work to redeem you. God has not stopped at the exodus for us today. God's greater work than the exodus from Egypt is Christ's work on the cross. 
eternal rescue for you, beloved Christian. Eternal redemption for you, weary saint. Eternal union with Christ, my exhausted brother and sister. What measure of love God has for his people. What boundless grace purchased by Christ for us that his mercies are new every morning for us. Jesus' life and death and resurrection doesn't point us back to the Exodus. The Exodus points us instead forward to the greater event, Christ crucified and raised for our justification. So the Passover was not merely a religious feast. It was a covenant meal where God identified with his people. He accepted them as his own and he spread before them his provisions. And that day, God did as he told Moses he would do way back in chapter three in the burning bush. Look at verse 51 of chapter 12. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Praise God for that. The power and work of God should be known in the hearts of his people and all over the world. So remember the God's rescue of his people and tell it to others. Let's look at this last chapter, chapter 13. And here's what we see. Israel is free. If you guys like Old musicals, my favorite musical of all time is Big River from 1985. It was amazing, okay? And there's this song, that it's the story of Huckleberry Finn, okay, escaping uh, with, with, with Jim, who was a slave, who's, who's going north to freedom. And, and he sings this song. He says, free at last, praise God Almighty, I am free at last. Well, friends, that's what is singing though they don't know it yet. That's what it's singing in the, the words of Israel. Praise God Almighty, they are free at last. But they're not free to be autonomous. They're now Yahweh's. They're now God's. Israel's to serve God and him only. That was marked by giving of the firstborn to him. The first animals were to be sacrificed at the beginning of chapter 13. The firstborn were especially to be serving God. The greatest act of God towards Israel was Israel becoming God's people where he has released Israel from slavery in Egypt for them to serve him alone. It was the work of God by his strong hand, verse three of chapter 13 says, that delivered Israel. And this wasn't an event to remember privately. It was an event to share with family, to share with the next generation and even others who we will see later in the book of Exodus. God's redeeming and saving work was to be shared in celebration and by having God's word on our lips, verse nine says, and Israel was to make a way to remember God's rescuing work. So the call for us, brothers and sisters, is to remember God's work in your life. The Exodus was an event that points us to the greater rescuing of God through Jesus on the cross. And so we regularly need to remember God's work for us. I think there's several ways that we can do this. Every week when we gather together, 
we want the gospel to inform every part of our worship. We want it to inform every part of our lives, every part of our minds. And so there should never be a Sunday gathering when Jesus' saving work on the cross isn't the highlight of what we are singing and thinking about. But we also need to remember God's work in each other. So when we see when someone has been delivered from addiction or trials and we see them singing their hearts out, friends, that's a reminder of God's good work. When someone is in the thick of suffering and yet is here on Sunday morning singing his or her heart out of God's faithfulness, it reminds us that God is still at work. In a really important way, we take the Lord's Supper as a specific reminder of God's work in our lives. In fact, what we see being commanded for us to do is that we are to take the Lord's Supper and by doing so, we do it to proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. It really is the Christian Passover meal. It was intended to take place in the Christian church, in the place the Passover occupied in the Jewish church. It is in the Christian substitute for the Passover. So our own taking of the Lord's Supper, we should hear echoes of Israel's deliverance from bondage to Pharaoh and our own redemption from the Egyptian of our sin. We should recall how the Lamb's blood turned away God's wrath. And so in Exodus chapter 13, verses 8, and then verse 14, God calls us to remember his great work by telling others. It begins with our own family. It begins with our own children. So parents, the church is called to come alongside of you. But parents, it is your responsibility before God for the children in your home to come to know about God's great faithful work by you sharing it with them. Awana is helpful. Children's church is helpful. Sunday school is helpful. Youth group is helpful. But you parents are called to share and train your children in the knowledge of God. We share with others about God's work in our lives because ultimately evangelism isn't about God's theoretical work. It's about God's actual personal work in our lives. So parents, when was the last time you shared with your kids why you're a Christian and urging them to consider making God their savior also? And in the remainder of chapter 13, verses 17 through 22, God led them out, not near the land of the Philistines, but toward the Red Sea. God led them by day with a cloud and by night with a pillar of fire, never to depart from before them. He is with them, leading them, directing them, directing them where to go. Imagine the very first days of freedom for Israel. And what do they see? Israel sees God. They don't know where they're going but God is leading them. God is guiding them. God is with them. They are no longer alone. They are no longer slaves. All Israel knew was what slavery was in Egypt. All Israel knew was hardship. But now they would know Yahweh. Praise the Lord for his saving, rescuing, redeeming, covenant-keeping work for his people. 
the power and work of God should be known in the hearts of his people and all over the world. So remember God's rescue of his people and tell it to others. Friends, not even the greatest nation in the world at that time could stop God. There was no bargaining with God. There was only submission. Friends, God does not stop his work for his people. And so we should walk away going, praise the Lord for his work for us. Praise the Lord for his power that rose Jesus from the grave, we read, is right now at work in us and for us. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord so that his name would be glorified in our hearts and in our lives and all over the earth. Well, let's spend a few moments responding to God and his word. We're always called to be hearers and doers of God's word, not hearers alone. So let's respond to God and and ask, Lord, what does my life need to look like? What, What does my heart need to look like that I can better trust the power of God at work? And then I'll close this in prayer and and the band will will lead us in another song. Father, how great is your power. How unstoppable are you when you are at work. God, how unstoppable you are in the rescue of your people. God, we so quickly forget you, we so quickly forget your power. God, thank you that your power is on display in the plagues of Egypt, rescuing your people out of slavery, making them yours by covenant. God, thank you for your greater work in Christ, rescuing us from the eternal penalty of our sin by Jesus stepping in as our substitute. And God, if if you have worked in this way, then nothing else in this life should cause us to fear. So God, help us to know your love, to know the extent of your power for your people. Help us to see your love displayed in Christ for us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. What great resurrection hope we have that Christ our Passover lamb is our hope is our peace is our righteousness not that from what we have done but because of what he has worked for us on the cross and by his resurrection praise the Lord for that if that is something that you're not sure you know personally Would you come talk to me afterward? I'd love to meet with you for coffee. I'd love to to do nothing else but talk to you about why that could be the greatest thing for your eternity. Well, here now our benediction coming from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Have a great rest of your Lord's day.